Our Father, thank you for this season of Advent, time in Mark's Gospel in the mornings and Hebrews in the evenings, focusing just on the person of the Lord Jesus. Raise our affections for him, we ask. Help us understand and appropriate in our lives all of who he is, all of what he has done for us and in us, and is pleased to use us to do, to bring his message, to speak his words to those who don't know him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now let's read Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This comes immediately after the episode that we looked at last week when Jesus forgave the man's sins as he lay at his feet, thus addressing his greatest need. And in response to the question from the Pharisees, what right does Jesus have to forgive sins? He said, chapter 2, verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's the divine human title that Jesus uses for himself, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise and walk, and so he did. Jesus has come to forgive sins. He has authority to do it. And so we pick up at verse 13. He went out, Jesus, again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Mark's presentation of Jesus in his gospel so far, everything is about Jesus. The spotlight is on him. John the Baptist, all the prophets that stood before them point to Jesus. The voice in chapter 1 from heaven, you're my son, whom I am well pleased with. That's uh, drawing all the lines of Old Testament prophecy, the king, the servant, pointing to Jesus. The devil and the demons speak of Jesus' identity. Jesus begins his public ministry, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, preaching. And then that key verse in chapter 1, verse 38, just glance back at that. Let us go, Jesus said, on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is what I came for. Jesus came to earth to preach a message. And that lacks no compassion from our Lord. Indeed, it expresses profound loving compassion to address humanity's greatest need. What is his message? Chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Gospel simply means good news. What is the good news? What is the good news that Jesus has come to say? Chapter 2, verse 5, your sins are forgiven. That is the gospel, the urgent good news for humanity. Jesus came to speak a message of forgiveness, pointing to himself. The church's priority, every Christian's priority, is to speak Jesus' message of forgiveness, pointing to him as the means of forgiveness. Now, that is Mark's presentation of Jesus thus far. Now, the last thing I want to say before we get into verses 13 to 17 is in response to questions and conversations I've had with you and others in the church family in this series in the early chapters of Mark. What exactly does it mean to say, I sin? What is sin? Why is sin our greatest need? Now, if you're new to Christian things, the word sin is quite a pejorative word in our culture. I mean, you're not going to hear it, for example, on the election hustings. Maybe good if we did. Because is that not what's wrong? But it's a very, very common Bible word. And it doesn't describe, it's not talking about what we do or don't do or say and don't do. When the Bible uses the word sin or sinner, it's speaking about who we are in the very core, the very center of our beings, our hearts. We are sinful humanity. So don't think of sin as what we do or say or don't do or don't say. The Bible says sin is who we are in the very core of our beings. Secondly, don't think of sin as relative to your fellow humanity. It's a terribly dangerous position to find yourself in when you begin to feel or say or think, yes, I am sinful, but relative to others, I am less sinful. You must think of sin not relative to our fellow humanity, even though these arguments are not as robust as we think when we look at the state of our hearts and truth. We've got to think of sin as relative to God. Our hearts against the holy, perfect, pure, divine heart of the living and the awesome God. Sin is who we are in the core of our beings. Sin is relative to our holy God. And our sinfulness in the core of our beings, relative to our holy God, separates us just logically let alone theologically, from a holy God. Separation from God is a fact, a consequence of our sinful state as humanity. And to be separated from a holy God is to be under the eternal judgment of God, not because God wants to put us under His judgment, but because He has to put us under His judgment, for He is perfect and He is holy. And God cannot, if He is God, give up any of his godness to reconcile humanity to himself. Now, eternal judgment faces humanity unless the righteous requirements of God are met. Now, we cannot. You know that if you are a Christian. You know that if you are not and you are seeking assurance. We cannot meet God's righteous requirements by who we are, by the way we live if we think our self-righteousness 
is enough, then we are we're, we're wrong. Now, we don't pronounce that unless we've come to realize that it's true. So Jesus came to speak a message of forgiveness. What he did for that paralyzed man at the beginning of chapter 2 was the most important thing he could do for him, the most compassionate thing he could do for him. Whatever our needs, forgiveness is our greatest need. Last night, as I often do on a Saturday, I, um, just to, to say that when Marilyn and Simon were up here, you might wonder what we were chatting about. What I always say to people when they join the church, when they stand up here, is if we weren't in this country, we'd all face each other when we sing, because it's wonderful. I get to see your faces. And I can see a lot. You can see a lot in people's faces. And I was telling Simon and Marilyn about some of you. Nice things. I was saying, look at that person over there. Let me tell you about them. Just not confidential stuff. Just life. Last night, I sent out a long list of names to our elders to pray for. All manner of stuff going on in people's lives. Just all manner of stuff. And yet, I would draw a a strong distinction on that list between those facing these things with their sins forgiven and those facing these things without their sins forgiven. There is an enormous difference. There's an enormous difference. Jesus came with the conviction and with the compassion to say no to addressing all the temporal needs that we face as humanity to deal with the eternal need that we have, which is the need of forgiveness. All he asks of us is faith. Faith is not sophisticated or learned. It does not need the answer to every question. Simon and Marilyn wonderfully illustrate that. They have a PhD each. They write books. That's great. But that's not what saves them. Simple, simple faith in Jesus. And they're nodding away. And if they were self-righteous, they would be tut-tutting. Faith is not sophisticated. It is the realization of our need of forgiveness and trusting in Jesus for that is forgiveness. That is what secures your eternity. Now, three simple things to say, each of profound significance. Number one, uh, for most of our time, Jesus calls a sinner to follow him, or Jesus calls a sinner, underlined, to follow him. In calling Levi, 13, 14, uh, of chapter 2, to be his follower at this juncture, at this point, Jesus is making it absolutely clear He has come to call sinners. Mark's description, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth is a giveaway. Now, I know that some of you are training to be chartered accountants here. Some of you are chartered accountants. We even had a retired tax man in service one. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were a nightmare. They were notoriously corrupt. 
And we just got to accept that. That's how it was. And to the original readers, they would know that Levi was an obvious sinner. It's an obvious sinner. That is Mark's point. Nobody is in any doubt that Levi is a sinner. This is the person, the crystal clear sinner, that Jesus calls to be his follower at the point that he has made it clear that he has come to speak a message of forgiveness to sinners. Now, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that it's only the likes of Levi that need forgiveness from Jesus. And that is the trap of thinking that sin is relative to our fellow humanity. To think it is only the likes of Levi who need forgiveness, that argument, that conclusion, is dismantled by what immediately precedes this episode in Mark's narrative and what immediately follows. Let me persuade you from Mark that that argument is not sound. Consider what comes before. Look back to chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Jesus calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to be his followers. Why does Jesus call them? Surely, he is not calling them because they are sinless. That's absurd. That's clear from the rest of the gospel. Simon, called Peter, we know him better as Peter, just a little bit later, Jesus would say to that man, Simon, that he called in chapter 1, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in your mind God's work, but human ideas. Simon Peter denied Jesus three times. His denial, his need of forgiveness, written in Scripture, his restitution, his forgiveness, written at the end of John's Gospel, threefold declaration of love, cancelling out his threefold denial of Jesus. And what of James and John? They are, in chapter 10 of Mark, the disciples jockeying for power, exposed by the humility of a blind beggar called Bartimaeus. And what about the man in chapter 2? The paralyzed man, Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I didn't say this last week. It's a glorious omission from last week's sermon. Not a glorious omission, a bad omission. Why did Jesus forgive his sins? My answer? Because that was his greatest need. Let me give you a, a, an even clearer answer. Why did Jesus forgive his sins? Because he was a sinner. He was. He needed it. And what follows, as we'll see in this little episode in Mark, is the self-righteous are excluded, not included in the kingdom of God because they will not accept their need of forgiveness. And what are the rest of Mark's gospel? Indeed, the rest of the New Testament, the consistent teaching of Jesus. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. Not even one. Some of us are persuaded by that logic from the New Testament letters. But here in the gospels, we're persuaded of the same thing. The same thing. Simon, Andrew, James, John, the paralyzed man, Levi. What do they share? Their need of forgiveness. 
Now, in calling Levi to be his follower at this point in his ministry, Jesus is making it absolutely clear he has indeed come to call sinners. But we can also learn from and be encouraged by Levi being called to be a follower of Jesus in other ways. Now, Mark has repeatedly emphasized in these early chapters the power of Jesus' words. His words have power. Now, when we speak Jesus' words, so I keep laying my hands on the Bible, and and you've got the Bibles open in front of you or on your phones. When we speak Jesus' words, this isn't magic. These are Jesus' words that he inspired the apostles to write. Jesus says these words spoken have the same authority and power now as they did then. It's as if Jesus is speaking. How do we know that Jesus is speaking? How do we know it's not me? God used human agents. Because surely the very best that I could muster is is human argument, emotional argument, but that's not going to supernaturally change people. It might for a day or two. It's not going to cause people to give up that life for another life. It's not going to comfort people when they're dying. It has to be Jesus' words. What can we learn? Jesus said to Levi, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Earlier, he said to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James and John, follow me, and they did. Now, that's not normal. So, Levi... I think it would be foolish for us to conclude that he got up that morning and uh, he said uh, to Mrs. Levi, um, over the last few months, I feel that um, my heart is changing. And really, I think we should change the direction of our lives. And therefore, he went to his tax collector's booth that day ready to meet Jesus. I don't think there's any evidence or any likelihood of that. I suspect that he went to his tax collector's booth that day, as he did every day, to line his own pockets. But Jesus called him. And Jesus' words got through into his heart or his mind somehow. Now, Levi's conversion, if you like, is not normal, this dramatic, dramatic turning to Jesus. Normally, for people, it's a much longer period of time. But the start of it, the spark that is lit, why is it that you listen to preaching all your life or you listen to somebody sharing the gospel and all of a sudden, it gets into your heart? Why is that? It's supernatural. The power of Jesus' words to penetrate the hardest of hearts Now, that gives us confidence, surely, in our evangelism. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus' powerful words, calling them to be his follower. Don't look at the person and conclude they will never respond. And don't ask the question in time, will you read the Bible with me, only to those you think might say yes. Now, if it is surprising that Jesus calls the likes of Levi... If it's surprising that he got through to Levi's heart, 
What is even more surprising is that Levi got up and followed him. Jesus' call, the power of Jesus' words, doesn't just cause Levi to consider spiritual things, reflect on his life, or go on a Christianity explore course, or read Mark's Gospel one and one It caused him, in the end, to follow Jesus, to throw his lot in with Jesus. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, when Jesus is at work supernaturally in somebody's life, embraced in his call is a supernatural capacity to respond. Jesus puts the desire, the faith, the response within us to leave life without him for life with him. He turns our priorities and purpose in life right around. It is no preacher it is no person reading the Bible with us that shifts a person from indifference to loyalty, from apathy to zeal, from selfishness to selflessness, from rejection to devotion. That is supernatural. And Jesus' call, the power of his words, asks of us, even demands of us, and enables us to serve him with our lives, to join in with his purpose and mission. Levi left one life for another. He gave up stuff for Jesus. Levi would be called Matthew, one of Jesus' close disciples, who would later write Matthew's gospel. What a generous Jesus he is. To this man, Levi, he gave that job. To the apostle Paul, he gave the job of being the missionary to the Gentiles, and to you and I, and uh, to you and I, he gives the task. And Jesus says, you will do greater things than I did to share the good news of Jesus. Generous Jesus embraces him fully and us in his mission. Now, maybe as a Christian, the Lord Jesus is calling you to some sphere of service. You're aware of his powerful words calling you, speaking to you. You're resisting. You have questions. Let me encourage you to talk and pray with someone in spiritual authority, someone in spiritual leadership. And if together you sense the rightness and genuineness of Jesus' call to some sphere of service, then say yes. But it's important you speak to someone. Or if you're not yet a Christian and the Lord Jesus is calling you, all I want to say to you is get up and follow him. You see, that's what I should say. I'm not going to muster all my arguments and how can I get under their skin or how can... In the end of the day, my stumbling words don't matter. It's the effectual call of God on your heart that makes you say what one of you here once said recently, I want what you have. And that's the Holy Spirit. Second, uh, what I've entitled Fellowship of Forgiven Sinners. Read with me again. Uh, verse 15, as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners 
were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Forgiveness leads to fellowship. Fellowship with God, when you are forgiven, you are reconciled to God. Fellowship with God, and you are restored in a relationship to God. The Spirit enables us to say, Father, God is no longer distant, inaccessible, irrelevant. You become comfortable with the word Jesus. It's a family word. But not only fellowship with God, forgiveness brings us into a restored relationship with our fellow forgiven sinners, other followers of Jesus who have been forgiven. We are not only reconciled to God, but to one another. And that's not friendship. Good as that gets, it is fellowship. We are united in Jesus with a selfless, sacrificial love for one another. We are united in a common purpose, a common identity, a common eternal destiny. We are united with Christians throughout the world and in history. But that works itself out on this earth in something called a local church, a community, where there are not too many people for you to look across the room and say, there is no one that I can love or can love me. Now, many of us know something of this closeness in our own families, our own households. Not all of us, though. But as Christians, we have a church family too, the household of God. When we are regenerated by God's Spirit, just have a look around you, we are able to look at these rather odd people. And they are odd. And we are odd. Who we've been introduced to. And we are able to call them brother and sister. That is the wonderful joy of regeneration. It's not a perfect family. But it is real. Now let me say this, that many of us come from loving and strong families. Not perfect, of course, but loving families. And I'm talking about our own households, our own families. But there are many who don't. And for them, a church family is their family for a range of reasons. It is their family, the family of God, a family where we are all the same, fellow forgiven sinners, a family with supernatural bonds of unity, a family where, and I used this illustration in service one, I, I said about an academic, I'm not talking about you two, an academic um, whose subject is so mind-bending that we wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about were he to speak to us. And I have first-hand experience of that with him. And there he was sitting next to somebody from a completely other world. I mean, that doesn't happen anywhere else. It happens in our nuclear families, but it doesn't happen anywhere else on the earth other than in a church family. Family where we are united to fellow forgiven sinners, where people are loved and cared for. Now we mess it up. We undermine what God is doing. We get in the way. Our sinful nature rears itself up within us. But this church family called Chalmers and that church family called Redeemer is supernaturally created by God. Through forgiveness, God has brought us into fellowship with him and one another. 
to, lose the, to use the language of Ephesians, we have an essential, a God-given unity in the spirit, in the bonds of peace. And so we are to maintain unity, not attain it. It's very, very different. How do we maintain unity in a church? Paul says in Ephesians, with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and love. And where do we get these things from? The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Let me just encourage you to think theologically about who we are as a local church. At the human level, we have friends and those who encourage us in our small groups, in our one-on-ones, in our church services. But were we not supernaturally forgiven, united, there would be chaos. Where is Jesus in Mark? He's sitting at the table with forgiven sinners. Jesus, his disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John, Levi, other tax collectors and sinners who had followed you. These are believers. That little phrase, many had followed him. They're all believers there. And that little group is a prototype of the church gathered around the table of the Lord, eating together, sharing in fellowship together because they are the family of God. Now, we make a a, a big deal, rightly and wrongly, of uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. But really what that is meant to be is Christians gathered around the table with the Lord. That's exactly what it is. Jesus is there. He's not out there. He's not in the realm of religion. He's in the realm of the unrighteous who have been made righteous. Would you like to be in a family like that? Are you on the edges, the fringes, looking in? Perhaps looking in longingly, but not in, not really in. Well, I'd love to persuade you to come to Jesus and be reconciled to God and to find the love of a church family. I'd love you to find the joy of praying with someone and for them and them for you. I'd love you to find the joy of under-shepherds. I'd love you to be in an environment where you share something with somebody and they're on your doorstep or they're in your home or they're on the phone. That's a normal church family. Don't sit on the outside of it. Now, in saying all these things, I realize that Chalmers is far from perfect. You have a flawed, sinful minister. We're not perfect because we're all here. Our sinful nature is still there. Our sharp tongues, our critical voices, our selfishness, our lack of love, our envy, pride, callousness, coldness, these things are still within us. 
We're still convinced in response to our question when someone says they're fine that they actually might be fine. They're never fine. But these things do not control us. Jesus does. By his indwelling spirit, the power of Jesus to call us, to forgive us, to reconcile us to God and to one another, the eternal bonds of fellowship that are strong and loving, to belong to Jesus is glorious. To belong to Jesus' people is glorious. This side of eternity. Question that I always ask myself, and I wrestle for years with the answer, Why is it, how is it that people who are not part of a living church family can survive in life? Because they seem to be. How can you go through stuff in life? Christians are no different. How can you go through stuff in life without that? It's often worried me, bothered me, that people do an awfully good job. The answer in the Bible is the devil blinds our eyes to the reality. And what happens when you become a Christian is your eyes are open to the bleakness. So Christians, I hope you're worried about next Thursday in the election. Not worried about who you're going to vote for, although if you could help me with that, that would be good. You're not worried or anxious. Because you see the real issues. You see a country in disarray. When you're in a church family, when you're facing terminal illness, you have a good theology that death is not a light thing. But in a church family, because you're in a family, you turn to Jesus. And in our country, when we look on in despair, we remember God is sovereign. When you become a Christian, all the pretense and the masks disappear. Finally, Jesus came for sinners. There's friction around Jesus from his religious leaders, from the religious leaders, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's so easy to parody these religious leaders as baddies. Um, Let's give them their due. Uh, They're not. Earlier, they had asked Jesus the question, what authority does Jesus have to forgive sins? To which Jesus said, so that you may know that I have authority, get up and walk. Here's another question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let me ask that question in two ways. Okay, why, why is it that Jesus is with these people? Why does he do that? Why is he not going to people who, on balance, lead a, a, a decent life? Why does he go to Levi? Why is he with him? Why is he with him? Or there's another way to uh, ask that question. Why is he with these people? Why is he with these wasters? Why is he with them? Because they are the people he came for. What does it mean to be the righteous here? Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous. He can't mean sinless people because they don't exist. He means the self-righteous, 
People who think they don't think they need forgiven or people who might accept Jesus' pardon their forgiveness but cannot come to terms with the fact that their own perceived righteousness, their self-righteousness, is but filthy rags. And where are these people? Where are these people? They are outside of the fellowship looking in. They are not at the table with Jesus. Why are they outside? Often because the people responsible for teaching them the truth of the gospel don't. They compound their self-righteousness and oftentimes because they will not come to terms with the fact that before a holy God, any righteousness that we perceive ourselves to have is but filthy rags. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus for forgiveness, takes the consciously unrighteous person to Christ to receive his righteousness. And the gospel is powerful to lead a self-righteous person to a conscious conviction of their unrighteousness and to Jesus for forgiveness for his righteousness. I was chatting to somebody after the first service and he said to me, I will never become a Christian. What a strong thing to say. I pray for him that that will not be the last word on his life. You cannot be in the family of God. You cannot be at the table with Jesus, whoever you are, until you see your self-righteousness as filthy rags. And I plead with you as a convicted sinner, it's all I am, forgiven by Jesus. But forget me. Forget me and listen to Jesus. He pleads with you as the eternal Son of God and God's appointed human King. He says to you, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I came to die so that my righteousness might become yours. Will you come to Jesus on his terms? He is so inflexible. He will not negotiate with you. He lays out his terms his side of the contract. But he lays out his terms as he hangs on a cross. The righteous one dying for the unrighteous to reconcile you to God. These are his terms. It is from the cross that he negotiates his contract. He died so you might be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that these very important truths in Mark's gospel will come home to each of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to that point of conscious, convicted unrighteousness. And so lead us to Jesus in whom we can have righteousness and be reconciled to God and to our fellow forgiven sinners and to enjoy the blessings of being in a family of God on this earth, a living local church. And Lord, if we are looking in from the outside, 
We simply commend such to your care and to your mercy and trust that the call of Jesus on a life is a mighty powerful thing to humble us and to bring us safely home to Jesus. For his sake, amen.